It's Friday, January 26th. I'm Trayvale Anderson. And I'm Priyanka Arabindi, and this is What A Day, where Americans have finally found the right microaggression towards the UK for all of the colonization. Yes, a U.S. chemistry professor's new book says that the best way to make tea is by adding a pinch of salt. And the British media is, as they say, whinging babes. Have no idea what that means, but I (laughs) get the gist. I get the gist. On today's show, we talk about the state of journalism with even more outlets unionizing or workers walking out this week. Plus, Alabama carried out the country's first execution using nitrogen gas. But first, President Biden will send CIA Director William Burns to help negotiate a new deal between Israel and Hamas. The goal being the release of all the remaining Israeli hostages being held in Gaza, as well as reaching the longest pause in the fighting since the war began over three months ago. This is an ambitious goal, especially after recent proposals on both sides have fallen through. But Burns will travel to Europe to meet with both his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts, as well as the prime minister of Qatar. Egypt and Qatar, of course, have played really key roles in negotiating between Israel and Hamas throughout this war. And Burns himself was actually a big part of the negotiations back in November to get much-needed humanitarian aid into Gaza. You mentioned recent proposals from both Israel and Hamas to kind of, you know, do pauses in the conflict. Can you tell us more about those? Yes. So Israel proposed a 60-day pause in the fighting in exchange for a phased release of all of the remaining hostages. At this time, there are believed to be more than 130 Israeli hostages who are still being held in Gaza. But that proposal would mean that fighting could presumably start up again in two months. Benjamin Netanyahu has said he wants to fully eradicate Hamas. So it is Mm -hmm. probably anticipated that they would, under those terms, start fighting right back up two months from now, which Hamas officials don't want. They are hoping for a permanent ceasefire in exchange for the release of all the remaining hostages. Israeli officials also want all senior Hamas leaders to leave Gaza, which they do not want to do. So a lot of non-starters on both sides lately, but all of this comes as the carnage from this war continues to mount. Currently, Israel's army is circling the city of Han Yunus in southern Gaza, where according to humanitarian organizations, thousands of people are trapped, many of them in hospitals. Earlier this week, the UN accused Israel of shelling a UN compound in the area that housed 30,000 displaced people. Israel denied responsibility for any strikes. As a reminder, since the fighting began, over 25,000 Palestinians and 1,400 Israelis and foreign nationals have been killed, as well as 83 journalists and at least 167 aid workers. So just a staggering human toll from this conflict. Yeah. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the show discussing the U.S. government's role in this conflict, how it's acted in Washington and abroad. But can you update us on what's been happening here at home in terms of the many, many protests, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the way that regular everyday people, not people in Washington, are sort of interacting with this war aside Mm -hmm. from, you know, reading the news and engaging with friends and family members about it. So as this war has continued, protests have obviously continued specifically around the U.S.'s involvement and whether we should officially be calling for a ceasefire or if we should be so actively funding and supporting the Israeli military amid the deaths of so many civilians in Gaza. All of these are valid questions to be asking of our government. These protests happen 
all over the place. We mentioned one just yesterday that took place at the United Auto Workers endorsement of Joe Biden. But universities in particular have really been in the spotlight as the sites of so many of these demonstrations and so much of the conversation around what constitutes legitimate criticism of Israel and the U.S. and what crosses that line into anti-Semitism or hate speech or, you know, even violence. As you'll remember, there was really massive fallout after the congressional hearings with the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT back in December. And as that day kind of underscored, universities, especially high-profile ones, have been under a lot of pressure to respond to allegations of anti-Semitism on their campuses and are really struggling with this distinction between speech and action that is protected by students' First Amendment rights and speech and action that is not. Yeah, I remember the hearing and them basically seeming like they had not actually thought this out before or that they were like wrestling with it in real time. There are a few different things happening on campuses around the country this week just to give you a sense of how this is very much continuing to play out because it has not stopped. Just yesterday, American University in Washington, D.C. banned all protests inside university buildings and mandated that clubs welcome all students and that posters and events around campus, quote, promote inclusivity. The university didn't say that this was related specifically to protests around Israel and Gaza, but this does follow protests on the school's campus in November and December. Meanwhile, at Northwestern University, the Department of Education opened a civil rights investigation on Tuesday after a complaint from an editor of a self-proclaimed conservative watchdog site alleged that the university didn't adequately respond to what he called instances of anti-Semitism in October, November, and December of last year. This is one of many such investigations that have been opened at schools all over the country. And at the end of last week at Columbia University, pro-Palestine student protesters were attacked with foul-smelling chemicals during a demonstration. We don't actually know what the chemicals were. That hasn't been released publicly. They specifically said that students with posters saying things like Jews for ceasefire were targeted the most aggressively. The university promptly banned the people accused of spraying them from the campus as the police investigate the incident. So, you know, Clearly a lot going on on campuses still, a lot to be concerned over. I mean, of course, Mm -hmm. instances of violence and students being attacked, not okay. But also like a lot of concerns around the First Amendment with schools like American instituting these kind of policies that really seem to toe the line of wanting to avoid culpability and Mm -hmm. not be the subject of ire of people who are accusing them of not doing enough to curb anti-Semitism, but also posing the question of, are they infringing on students' rights with these rules? Mm -hmm. These are all things we will continue to keep an eye on and and continue to keep you updated as um, they progress. Absolutely. Thanks for that update, Priyanka. Now on to a story we've been covering this past week, and that is the state of the journalism industry. I'm going to start with the latest with the LA Times. Its billionaire owner, Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong, has appointed an interim executive editor. Her name is Terry Tang, and she is the first woman to ever be the paper's top editor in its 142-year history. This appointment, of course, comes after a tumultuous couple of weeks at the paper. Not only did the previous executive editor, Kevin Merida, step down due to disagreements with the owner over the future of the paper, two other masshead-level editors resigned recently as well. Then there was the one-day strike last week 
week that the paper's union organized to protest then-impending layoffs that the company announced. And then earlier this week, the company actually went through with those layoffs, cutting at least 115 rolls across the newsroom. Yeah, it really feels like every day this week there was another story of another publication downsizing or shuttering altogether both national publications and local ones. Like this week in particular really has felt brutal, but this has been ongoing for quite some time. Yeah, and you know, this week specifically, I know a lot of us who are somehow connected to the LA Times, that's where I got my start. We were especially hurt, especially saddened, right, by the course of events. But so many others, I think, have accurately been looking at these layoffs as a sign of how bad things have really gotten in the industry writ large, right? As fellow former LA Times journalist Justin Ray said in a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle this week, quote, of the biggest conclusions to be made from the tragedy is that even large news outlets can't avoid the economic reality that news is dying and that journalists of color likely will be hurt the most. Yeah, it is incredibly disheartening. And that reality that it's journalists of color and from communities that are underrepresented will be the ones the most harmed by this and the voices that we will not here uh, because of this is really, really disheartening. Yeah. And like, obviously, the LA Times is considered, I think, like a national publication, right? But it's the local ones, right, that are being hit the hardest, right? Even more so. Those are the ones closing so often that according to the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern last year, now over half of the counties in the US have just one or no local news outlets being in danger of becoming news deserts. And as we've seen these closures happening more quickly, we're also seeing, right, newsrooms all over the place unionize or otherwise stand up for better pay and better working conditions. They want a seat at the table. In fact, the Texas Tribune, after dealing with layoffs a few months ago, their journalists announced plans this week to unionize. They said in a statement Wednesday, quote, we want a seat at the table next to management making decisions about our organization's future and how to best serve our members and readers. It makes sense. We see this in like a whole variety of industries of workers and people who are making the product wanting a seat at the table but also in journalism specifically this industry has been plagued by so many dumb decisions by people in leadership like we all remember the pivot to video no Mm -hmm. like had we had actual (laughs) journalists and people doing things at the table Maybe we could have avoided trying to feed an algorithm that was just never like there's so much that would have perhaps not happened had we had the right people at the table. Literally. And then you also have the union at Forbes magazine, which is actually in the middle of a three day walkout through Monday right now. It's the first known work stoppage in that publication's 106 year history. Antonio Pequeño IV is a breaking news reporter for Forbes. Here's what he told us was on his mind as the Forbes walkout kicked off. Personally, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about myself as a young journalist, and I look at all the obstacles before us in terms of the hazards of this industry. And it's a bit like, you know, trying to climb a mountain and the 
uh, ground beneath you is kind of crumbling. So, you know, as I gingerly step back onto my soapbox here, I want to reiterate for everyone, right, that if this trajectory doesn't change course, we will really be in the shitter in so many ways. The decline in news outlets has been linked to increased sociopolitical corruption in many local communities, which is already bad in and of itself. But imagine what an election year will bring, right? The reality is that we all are already playing a role in what's unfolding. And if you want to be part of the solution and not the problem, you've got to subscribe to your local newspaper or your favorite outlet. If they don't do subscriptions, you can donate. Even actually just clicking on and reading the reporting of journalists covering the news that you say you care about, not just clicking on the headline or reading the headline on TikTok, okay? That's helpful as well. We all have a role to play. Good for you. I mean, you're going to learn something. It's going to be good for the industry. It's a win-win all around. There's no reason not to do it. Listen, you scratch my back, we scratch yours. Okay, you see how that works? (laughs) That's the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. What a Day is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S., with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. We love Fast Growing Trees here I keep telling you that the many plants that I've gotten from these folks are yet hanging on. Um, And that's not because I have a green thumb, okay? This spring, fast-growing trees, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code WAD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code WAD at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code WAD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Therapy is great for, you know, you know that thing that just is like sitting on your shoulder, you can't get over it, and you just sometimes need somebody to talk through it with? Therapy can be helpful for that, you all, okay? You got to get it off your chest, you know? And you can do that with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash WAD today to get 10% off your first month. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WAD. What a Day is brought to you by Monarch Money. Are you saving for a down payment, a wedding, a dream vacation? Monarch makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, your investments, transactions, and more all in one place. You can create custom budgets, track your progress towards financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. really just makes it easy. 
After trying out Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash wad. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash wad for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's get to some headlines. Headlines. Last night, Alabama carried out the first ever execution in the nation using nitrogen gas. Kenneth Smith died at the hands of the state for his role in a 1988 murder for hire. As we've discussed on the show, Smith is a rare example of a person who has actually survived a state's execution attempt. Prison staff tried to put Smith to death in 2022 using lethal injection, but they couldn't insert needles into a suitable vein, so it got called off. Smith's lawyers had been fighting last night's execution and claimed that Alabama wasn't adequately prepared to carry out this execution. They added that another malfunction of this new method could have caused Smith to suffer further. But several courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, allowed this execution to move forward. Yesterday morning, Smith ate his very last meal, a T-bone steak, hash browns, and eggs from Waffle House. The local news website AL.com says Smith's last words before he died were these, quote, Tonight, Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. Thank you for supporting me. Love all of you. And after the gas began to flow, AL.com reports Smith smiled and nodded toward his family and signed, I love you. Moving on to more upsetting news. And just a heads up that this story mentions rape and sexual violence. So please feel free to skip ahead if you need to by about a minute. Researchers estimate that nearly 65,000 pregnancies caused by rape likely occurred in the 14 states that implemented total abortion bans after Roe v. Wade was overturned. That is according to new research published by the medical journal JAMA Internal Medicine earlier this week. And it's worth noting that the lead author is the medical director of Planned Parenthood Montana. Texas accounted for 45% of that total number, amounting to more than 26,000 rape-related pregnancies. Researchers also found that just 10 or fewer legal abortions took place in those states post-Dobbs. So if you were banking on those exceptions that those laws supposedly had baked into them for situations like this, I don't know, what's 10 over 26,000? You can do the math on how often that is working out. Mm -hmm. The researchers wrote that their findings indicate that, quote, persons who have been raped and become pregnant cannot access legal abortions in their home state, even in states with rape exceptions, which is, I think, what a lot of people have been trying to say for a long time. It's not Mm -hmm. as simple as just hopping over one state and being done with it. The researchers used data from the CDC, the FBI, and the Bureau of Justice Statistics for their analysis. If I sound pissed off about this, it's because I fucking am, and you should be too. Absolutely. A group of transgender veterans sued the Department of Veteran Affairs yesterday over its failure to provide coverage for gender-affirming surgeries. The federal lawsuit was filed by the Transgender American Veterans Association, or TAVA, and it seeks to compel the VA to act on a 2016 rulemaking petition. That petition asks the VA to amend its health benefits to include medically necessary gender confirmation surgery for trans veterans. And according to the lawsuit, even though the VA has 
publicly stated its intentions to provide these surgeries to veteran patients and even proposed rules for cost benefits analysis and held hearings. It hasn't taken any formal action in the eight years since the petition was filed. So the lawsuit calls on the VA to, at the very least, grant or deny the petition and not keep trans veterans waiting any longer. In a statement released yesterday by TAVA, the association said in part, quote, gender confirmation surgery dramatically reduces the risks of suicidal ideation, depression, and psychological distress for transgender people who live with gender dysphoria. And yesterday, the court ordered the VA to respond within 14 days. Good, because they've already had eight years to think about it. So 14 days should be more than enough time. Mm -hmm. Housing was unaffordable for half of all renters in the U.S. in 2022. That is according to a new report from Harvard University. The school's Joint Center for Housing Studies looked into data from rental households nationwide in 2022. Researchers found that rents spiked that year during the pandemic, so much so that a record 50% of renters spent more than a third of their monthly income on rent and utilities. If you uh, live in a big city like Los Angeles or New York, you're probably like, that's normal. I didn't know (laughs) that that was. (laughs) The report also found that nearly a quarter of renters were spending more than half of their monthly income on rent. This comes after the rate of homelessness in the U.S. hit a record high last year with officials counting more than 650,000 people living in tents, cars, and shelters, a trend that experts say is driven by a lack of low-rent housing and the end of pandemic-era federal aid. Chris Herbert, the managing director of Harvard's Center for Housing Studies, said in a press release that the study's findings demonstrate how the federal government must establish more rental assistance programs similar to the ones that kept people afloat during the pandemic but have since expired. He wrote, quote, only then will the nation finally make a meaningful dent in the housing affordability crisis, making life so difficult for millions of people. And finally, White Lotus star Tom Hollander gave an interview about how he once received a seven-figure paycheck in the mail that was supposed to be sent to Spider-Man actor Tom Holland. The revelation comes from when Hollander appeared as a guest on Late Night with Seth Meyers earlier this week. Meyers asked Hollander if people ever mistake him for Holland, given how similar their names are. Here's what the 56-year-old actor had to say. The interval came and I thought I'd check my emails and I got an email from the agency saying, payment advice slip, your um, first box office bonus for the Avengers. And um, and I thought... (laughs) I don't think I'm in the Avengers. If you're familiar with both Toms, you'll know that they don't look much alike outside of being two British white guys. Hollander is known for his work playing other British guys in movies like Pride and Prejudice. Holland, on the other hand, is most known for playing the American teenage superhero Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And of course, dating our queen Zendaya. Well, obviously, yes. While the two don't share much of a resemblance, Hollander told Myers that he and Holland shared the same agent at one point during their career, so the payroll office probably just got them mixed up. You know somebody got fired, and I would just like to say, if somebody would like to get me mixed up with some other Trayvall Anderson or related Anderson who makes seven figures in a bonus, Check. In a bonus. In a bonus. Not even the regular. Listen, check. Priyanka Chopra. <laughs> Priyanka, Priyanka Chopra. Chopra. I would not mind. I'm around. 
who's her agent? I need to get, I need to do some dialing. Get in touch. I love that for you. Yeah, I think a case of mistaken identity could be great for us. You know what okay. I mean? I'm just saying. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. We wanted to take a moment to congratulate the one and only Trayvell Anderson for their NAACP Image Award nomination. Their book, Historically Black Phrases, from I Ain't One of Your Little Friends to Who All Gonna Be There, was nominated in the Outstanding Literary Work Instructional category from authoress to nominee. We absolutely love to see it. Congratulations, Trayvell. Y'all so, so funny surprising so me well with this. deserved. But thank y'all so much. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to we me. We had to. We had to. Okay. Yeah. I love this, this for is amazing. me. <laughs> How does it feel? Speech. Speech. You know, I have waited so long for a, an NAACP Image Award nomination. Because, you know, this is Black People's Oscars, for yeah. the record. And so, I'll take it. Thank you so much. Can't think of anyone more deserving. I also <laughs> think that there's probably another Trayvell out there hoping that their name gets mixed up with yours. Your goals. <laughs> Thank you. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review. Don't be so salty over tea, Brits, and tell your friends to listen. And if you are into reading and not just checks for Tom signed over to me, like me, <laughs> what a day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Priyanka Arabindi. I'm Trayvell Anderson. And, and we're, we're all, all Tom, Tom Holland, Holland today. today. Listen, he's a cutie. Wouldn't mind being Tom Holland for a day. Just to get the check, to be quite honest. The check, the superpowers, the girlfriend. Love it. I'm into it all. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs>is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Our show's producer is Itzi Quintanilla. Raven Yamamoto and Natalie Bettendorf are our associate producers. And our showrunner is Leo Duran. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. 